After Michael Cox's sterling solo effort last time, we're back to our full complement here on the European Football Show. Michael is back with his usual mixture of incisive comment and anti-Dutch midfielder invective, and he's joined by Eurosport's very own Alex Chirk, who'll add some sanity to proceedings, or at least his version of sanity. And with so many top-of-the-table battles gathering pace around Europe, we thought that today was the ideal opportunity to look at those fixtures that will define the season through the eyes of both of our guests. So it's two experts telling us what might happen this season on the European Football Show in a association with Eurosport, and that at least is worth a round of applause. We have loads to come on this week's show then, including a former Liverpool and England player on what makes the perfect strike partner and our ideas of the fixtures that will define the season. But first, I'd really like to let this pass, but I can't. The 23 names for FIFA's Ballon d'Or award have been revealed since our last show. And while we can all argue uh, all we like about the list of 23, it's the coaches list that has made for most controversy. Jose Mourinho and Vicente Del Bosque and indeed Arsene Wenger are on it. Diego Simeone and, for example, Philippe Montagnier, Vincenzo Montella, Stephen Keshi and Safet Susic are not. Some of those, of course, are debatable, but it does seem to be Spain where much of the problem lies. So we're joined on the line by the presenter of the second best uh, football podcast out there, Sky Sports Spanish football commentator John Driscoll, to discuss all of this further. Hi, John, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Dave. Thanks Glad for you're listening. Thanks for that. <laughs> thank you very much indeed. No, it, as long as the feeling's mutual, it gives us a listener each, which is a, a good start, <laughs> as anyone knows. So so what do we make of this? I mean, let's get the, the obvious thing out of the way first. Um, the, the Simeone's emission is borderline ludicrous, isn't it? It's lazy, isn't it? I think more than anything else. I think the, the list is lazy, isn't it? They put Del Bosque on. How can you give it to Del Bosque in, the, in this year? They, they've qualified for the World Cup, and that's, that's all he could have done. Uh, and, and he's done it. Um, Wenger's on, um, whereas, you know, you can't give him that on the basis of what Arsenal did last season. They've done all right this season. Mourinho's on. Uh, the jury is is still out on what he's done with Chelsea so far. He might go on to do brilliant things again. But last season at Real Madrid uh, ended as a shambles. He fell out with everybody. They lost the league by a mile. And Simeone has been brilliant. He, he's booked the trend that the big spending clubs always do best. He hasn't spent a fortune. He's made a profit in the transfer market from the players they've sold. Uh, he hasn't gone in for particularly fancy rotation policies. He's, he's, he's used quite old-fashioned values of a good, solid, well-organised team. And he's, he's turned them into a team that used to be a laughing stock and is now threatening to be part of the European elite. He's, he's done a brilliant job. Simeone. I mean, I, I wouldn't give it to him above Heinkes. I think Heinkes should be nailed on for, for this award, given how brilliant a season Bayern Munich have and, and the fact that, that was his, that he was bowing out. But, yeah, Simeone had to be on it. Montagnier, he did a good job with, with Sociedad last season. They had a very good set of players. There is a little bit of a vacuum, isn't there, in, in Spain for that fourth place. And so, um, yeah, I mean, he had a better season than Mourinho, put it that way. Yeah, you compare and contrast with your expert eye, the Mourinho-Simeone thing, John, because just, just explain why, uh, from a Spanish context, we can, you know, we can all make, have our opinions about Chelsea this season, but from a Spanish context, what they've both done this calendar year, it's, Simeone is, is really streets ahead, isn't he? And remember, it is the calendar year, it's not what they've achieved before. Yes, yep. I mean, he came in, it's been nearly two years now that he came in, it was a long time for a, a, a coach in La Liga, and they've just got better and better. He started off with the defence, and then they've improved from there. They had Falcao, who scored a hatful of goals last season, and when he moved on, we all feared that they might dip down again. They had a bit of a dip uh, in the spring in terms of their league performance, which is why they, they fell away. 
But they came back. He then refocused them and won the, the Copa del Rey. They hadn't beaten Real Madrid for a long time, but now Simeone has got them beating Real Madrid again. He's actually genuinely got to Atletico above Real Madrid. And compare that to Mourinho, who did have the champions. We all thought last season that he might have a good chance of, of pushing on, given the, the state of flux at Barcelona, the illness to Tito Villanova. The, the opportunities were there for Mourinho, but for some reason he decided to, to wage war, partly with his own players, uh, mainly with the Spanish media and the Spanish authorities. And he tried to get this... He seemed to me to be trying to get the siege mentality going, but it's Real Madrid. It's the biggest, most privileged football club in the world. What you've got to do when you're the Real Madrid manager is, is do it with dignity, do it with attacking football, and, and please everybody and, and stay on side with everybody. And he just utterly failed to do that towards the end. I think there's, I don't think there's any doubt that Mourinho left uh, under a cloud, and at the same time, Simeone went from, from, from brilliant to magnificent. We'll talk about players in a second, John, but Alex, I just wanted to ask you, it seems incredibly hard to get thrown off this list and quite hard to get on it as well, doesn't it? There's an element, there's a habitual element to all of this, I think. Uh, There certainly is, and it's more notable with managers because players can play badly, sorry, can play well in a losing cause and they probably still deserve their place, but managers, we judge them, and probably rightly so, on how well did your team do? And you look at Mourinho's track record, as, as John said, it was it was catastrophic. Mourinho himself said it's been a disaster. Uh, and so to to keep him on the list, because he is still a good coach, and he is still one of, the, one of the top 10 coaches in the world, regardless of what's happened this year, but that isn't the criteria that the, that the award is judged on. So, it's, it's, yes, it's, it's ludicrous. And, Michael, with your sort of expert eye across these things, I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing we're all agreeing, including John, about Simeone. But what do you make of the rest of the list? Who would you throw off? Would you have Simeone for Mourinho? How, how would you sort of shape it? Well, I think that the three you mentioned, Wenger, Del Bosque, Mourinho, clearly outstanding coaches who will be remembered in 10, year, uh, ten years' time as doing something special. But this calendar year hasn't really worked for them. Um, I'd like FIFA and, and the people who compile this list to look at what was the major international tournament of the year. And for me, that was the Africa Cup of Nations. And uh, the two managers who got to the final, Stephen Keshi for Nigeria and Paul Putt for Burkina Faso, with you know uh, a squad of almost unknowns, really, both had overachieved massively. And that is surely the the type of manager that should be on this list. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? If you look at the, the things in sort of uh, bare contrast, getting Burkina Faso to the Cup of Nations final, or indeed winning it with Nigeria, which is a heck of a pressure job, compared to getting a team to the Confederations Cup final and getting the world champions to the World Cup, is, you know, you know which one you'd give it to, don't you? So it's interesting. Um, John, I wanted to ask you about players as well. Talking of laziness, and it's the word that you, you've used, and I think a lot of people agree with, um, should Xavi be on there, for example? Um... It probably doesn't matter, does it? Because we probably know who's going to win it. It's going to be Ribéry or Messi. But just in terms of acknowledgement of players, there must be other players that ought to be on that list. There are. Uh, it's a quite a big list at 23, isn't it? And so there are quite a few who've got no real chance of winning it. Chavi declined over the year. That's that's fair enough. I think if you were looking at it with fresh eyes, uh, you probably wouldn't have him. In any, probably wouldn't be in the top ten. I could probably name ten who've had a better season. Um, same could be said of Iniesta. To be to be truthful as well, Barcelona, right? They won the Spanish league, they won it comfortably, but uh, they they declined in the Champions League and were well beaten by by Bayern Munich. Um, I, I'd still have Messi at the top of my list. I'd still vote for Messi if it were down to me because I still think he's the best individual player in in the world. And I don't think you have to give the Ballon d'Or to a player from the best team. 
I, I, I look back fondly on the days that Stanley Matthews, when, it, when he was playing for Blackpool, they, you know, they weren't the best team in Europe, and, but they still picked out the best, the best player. So I, I would still vote for, for Messi. But you're right, it's at less, to a lesser degree than the coaches, it does seem to be quite hard to get knocked off it. I think you probably have to have a couple of bad years before you're off the shortlist. Yeah, I fondly remember just about as a very small child, Alan Siemenson as coming to Charlton as a Ballon d'Or winner, of course. He won it in the, uh, in the late 70s. But just before we ask John about uh, Atletico and Barca in our fixtures to look out for, who would you give it to, Michael? Who would you? Who, who would your? We can give us your top three if you like, but but give us your one at least. Uh, I'd give it to Messi. I agree completely with John. He's been performing better than any player over the course of the year. Just because Barcelona lost to Bayern, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, a Bayern player should win it. Their strength was the team, and that's why they won three trophies. But it doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, the best individual. I'm predicting that Alex is going to make a comment about Thiago Alcantara here. But <laughs> uh, but who would you give it to? Um. Probably, probably Messi, and I think that the momentum that Ribery's got is understandable to an extent. But it is the best player from the best team, and there seems to be a there seems to have grown a consensus that okay, Ribery's their best player. You might say it was Philip Lahm, you could say Schweinsteiger, but Ribery seems to be the Bayern candidate. And if he wins, it will be because of the team and not because of the individual. And you know that's obviously runs. Uh, contrary to what the award's about. It's interesting where that consensus comes from, isn't it, about about Ribery? Where has that appeared from? That I mean, there are, there are many other candidates, Michael, in that side. There's the token goalkeeper in Manuel Neuer, but it, where does the, the Ribery consensus come from? He's a terrific player, but there are, there are other fantastic players in that team. I think because over the course of the season, he was the most consistent attacking player. I think towards the end of the knockout stages, Robin was equally as important and was probably the key player in the final. I thought Muller was fantastic as well. I think Tony Cruz would have had a decent shout if he hadn't got injured in the quarterfinal. I think he's there. I think he's uh, Bayern's best player at the moment, actually. But I, I think if you're going to give it to a Bayern player, Rubri should be the one who wins it. But I, I, I kind of blame Sir Alex Ferguson for this kind of insistence that it should go to a player on the winning team. In, in 1999, when David Ginola won the PFA Player of the Year, he kept complaining about how um, United had five players on the shortlist and that split the vote. That's not what it's about. You're voting for the best individual, and Ginola probably was the best individual. He just wasn't remotely near to being a part of the best team. And given that we're talking about Spain, was it not glorious, the picture that was taken of David Moyes Holdall with Sir Alex Ferguson's autobiography poking out of it, <laughs> uh, reading on the pen? And for what it's worth, and, and it's very little, I, I disagree with all three of you. I, I would, And you're going to laugh at me, but I would give it to Zlatan. I genuinely would. I think he's the best player in the world at the moment. Messi would be second for me, and, and, and Ribéry probably third. But, John, we're talking about fixtures that are going to define the rest of the season. I know it's an early call, but I think Atletico against Barca on the 12th of January is looking very interesting. And then, of course, if people hadn't already uh, realised, Barca Atleti is on the final day of the season, isn't it? It is, yep, yep. And it's looking that way, isn't it? Let's let's hope that um, they both stay in the running. I, I, I imagine that they will, if you look at the, the fixtures so far. If you look at the, the lucky results in Spain so far this season, I wouldn't say that Atletico have got any lucky points. Barcelona have. They had the, the game against Sevilla, where Sevilla had a goal ruled out, um, mystifying, uh, non-allowing of a goal uh, scored by Cala. And uh, Real Madrid have had some luck in a couple of games, one where the referee was then suspended from the list for a few weeks because it was just it was just an appalling refereeing decision, a series of decisions. So they've both ridden their luck, the big two, the Classico teams, whereas Atletico haven't. They've remained solid. What might count against them, of course, is that they, they haven't been rotating. They are playing Champions League football. The Copa del Rey starts, and there's a real intense period of matches the end of December. Then there's the, the very small break, and then loads of games, Copa del Rey and La Liga, 
in January. And Atletico did struggle towards the end of last season. They don't have as big a squad as those two. So whether they can stay with Barca all the way to the end of the season, uh, fingers crossed that there is a chance. But they're at home to Barca uh, weekend of the, the 12th of January. Let's hope it's not 3 o'clock kickoff on a Saturday because then everyone gets offended that Sky aren't showing it live. <laughs> and uh, But yeah, that's a massive game. Uh, Atletico could win that game. They match Barca stride for stride in the Super Cup, lost on away goals. They At the moment, they are as good as Barca. That, that's the point, though, isn't it, in terms of momentum? It's good for Atleti with their squad, John, because they've got a break before that game. They, they've, got one, they've both got one warm-up game, as it were, before the big one. And if they could win that, then that could be a massive momentum shift, could carry them all the way through to March. And if they get to March, then they can get to April and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. You know, at, at the moment, it is genuinely possible that Atletico Madrid could win the the, the La Liga title. Uh, if you're asking me to, to bet money on it, I'd still bet for Barcelona. Interesting stuff. John, thank you uh, so much uh, for your time as ever and, uh, and good luck with the podcast. One day, you know, I've always tell you, you've got something to aim for and one day you might just get there, but we'll already have moved on. <laughs> <laughs> It's always a place to talk to you, Dave. Uh, thanks very much indeed. John Driscoll, a great friend of, uh, of the show and indeed of me as well. Um, and interestingly, John, of course, commentates on Eurosport, as do I, Alex. Have you been across this, uh, you might have been as well, the Under-17 World Cup and the extraordinary story of Mexico? Because if you haven't, then, uh, then you both ought to be. Because Mexico lost their opening game by six goals to one against Nigeria. Got an absolute thrashing. Uh, very nearly went out and have now got to the final. Um, having played this sort of brinksmanship game and beaten people 1-0 late on. They put out Brazil now, they put out Argentina in the semi, and guess who they play in the final? They play Nigeria in the final, uh, having lost 6-1 in the opening game. And I, I can't, I mean, feel free, studio at europeanfootballshow.eu. If anyone out there, I was talking to Jim Begden about this at the weekend, who I've worked with on it, um, can think of a team that's lost an opening or a second game by that margin and then got on to either reach a final or win a tournament. But it's, it shows that they're defending champions as well, Mexico, so mm-hmm. it shows great pride and stickability. And I thought Interesting, Michael, given what's happening with the national side, quite nice to know that their sort of 16 and 17-year-olds have at least got something about them. Well, definitely, they keep performing very well in the youth competitions and, you know, even up to uh, the Olympics last year, which I guess is the, the most senior youth competition, if you can put it that way. Um, what's gone wrong in the, in the team is just remarkable, but uh, I think they'll still qualify for the World Cup. I think they'll get past New Zealand. And if they do, I wouldn't be surprised if they put in a decent show. I think they've got the talent there. They just need someone who can basically get the squad in order in terms of discipline and in terms of tactics. Are you putting Mexico forward as our latest hipster dark horse? Well, I thought they were. I saw them just before the last World Cup in a friendly against England at Wembley, and they lost 3-1. I thought they were fantastic, and I really thought they had a decent chance of uh, winning the competition. They were a little bit unlucky against Argentina. Um, And actually, in the Gold Cup in 2011, they put in a tremendous performance to beat the US 4-2. I think it's possibly the best international game I've ever seen. Wow, that good. Really, really good. And one with one of my favourite goals of all time by Giovanni Dos Santos in the 120th minute, I think it was. Um, so I'd love to see them there because I think they're potentially a very good team. Yeah, they, they, yeah, absolutely. They might play the under-17s, Alex, as well. They give, give them a chance in the World Cup, given some of the lack of commitment by the other players. Well, they could do it. It does look, uh, <laughs> I say this with tongue in cheek, it does look a little bit like Nigeria playing their under-21s in that tournament. But uh, there you go. You think under-21s? Well, I don't know. Fellow scored a goal the other day. looks about 27. But uh, anyway... <laughs> They're a very good and exciting side and they've got a really good playmaker uh, as well. And, and listen, World Cup memories of Mexico. Anyone who grew up um, older than you, as I always say, with Hugo Sanchez and Negrete. Uh, I know Robbie Thompson listens to us. Uh, Robbie Thompson's in France now. Uh, great man is Robbie and uh, Negrete is uh, is one of his great heroes. A fantastic player. Um, lots more to come here on the European Football Show in association with Eurosport, including James Horncastle on the remarkable story of Veronica.
Verona. I know that Michael will have a thing or two to say about that. And Paul Walsh on just what makes a good strike partner. But let's quickly have a closer look at some of those season-defining fixtures. Turn our attention firstly to Germany, where the table currently has Bayern a point clear of Dortmund. And after the next international break, again, Michael, interestingly, after a break, all these fixtures seem to fit in this way. Bayern go to Dortmund. 23rd of November is a huge day in the Bundesliga with your sort of tactical hat on uh, or game management, isn't it? Sorry, game management hat on, as we discussed last time. What do you you make of that? How does that match up? It's going to be fascinating for starters, isn't it? Well, I think a very interesting thing is the fact it's coming off the back of an international break. Because if you remember Guardiola at uh, Barcelona, he had real problems with the game uh, just after the international break. So I remember they lost to uh, Hercules 2-0 at home, which was just after an international break. And there was a point where they had a win rate of something like 30%, which compared to Barcelona, usually up at 70 80% is remarkable. Um, I think Dortmund at the moment are probably a slightly better unit. I think they've just been working under their coach for longer. Um, the intensity they play at, the way that they can counterattack, the way they uh, press high up the pitch means that they're just more more solid, more cohesive. But Bayern have got such a good squad and they've got so many tactical options and I think that's the difference between the teams. I don't think Klopp has a real alternative way to play. Sometimes he plays 4-3-3, but it's basically the same system, whereas Guardiola's got so many options in every position. And there'll be some running in this game. There will be some ground covered. Klopp takes such pride in that, doesn't he? The, was it 11 kilometres more in the game against Arsenal, the yep. first Champions League game? Uh, and uh, it'll, be, it'll be high. Do you think it'll be that sort of high energy, uh, high tempo kind of game? Well, I think it'll be a, a clash of styles, really. I think Bayern will try and slow it down and keep the ball in, in uh, the midfield. But the fact is that Dortmund, I think, makes them very slight favourites, although I think over the course of the season, Bayern will uh, probably triumph. And what do you make of this, Alex? It's, it's going to be terrific. It's, it's great when we have these clearly defined battles, isn't it, in a league, where, which isn't quite the case in the Premier League, as we'll move on to, but uh, the, these are the big two. Yeah, and it was interesting what Klopp was saying about how he likes, he, uh, how he, he, he doesn't particularly like Arsenal, he likes Arsenal Wenger, but he doesn't like Arsenal's style of play, he wants his team to play, to play the kind of traditional English style with all chaos everywhere and people running around at a thousand miles an hour, and he could possibly take some inspiration from the Chelsea v Barcelona Champions League games that Guardiola doesn't like it when people get in his team's face. Sometimes they can pass it around them, but he doesn't like he doesn't like that sort of confrontational, high energy approach from opponents. And so, in terms of how the teams match up, it's 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 not a bad it's not a bad matchup for Dortmund. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if they won that. But you, are you along with Michael in the sense that it may not be season defining that Dortmund might win this game, but Bayern will be the ones over the course of the season. Yeah, I think that it's probably. Stretching the point to say Dortmund need to win to stay in the championship race because they're only one point behind. But really, I think anybody who's, who, who wants a close race is going to be praying for a Dortmund win because Bayern are just not going to drop those points against the lesser teams that, that the Dortmund might. There's something thrilling about Dortmund, though, isn't there, Michael? I know we touched on it last time, but having heard Klopp talk so much before uh, the Champions League game that we can't talk about because we're recording on the day of it, which is the, the brilliance of my scheduling. But um, the fact that Klopp is so clearly there for the long term. And that that team will build and build and build in his style, in his way. And there's something really thrilling about that, the young players that we don't even probably heard of yet coming through. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's particularly um, admirable that they've lost three key players in as many seasons. They lost Sahin, obviously he's come back, uh, Kagawa and, uh, and Gutsa. And they've just replaced him really cleverly just by getting in generally players from... Uh, well, I think Gundogan's the ultimate example. When Shaheen went, I thought they'd really struggled. But Gundogan, who I must admit I didn't know a great deal about before he before he came, but he just fitted into the style fantastically well. 
And I think that's quite clever because it's such a kind of a specific team. And so to recruit players for that, I think, is quite difficult, but they've done it very well. You should watch the Youth Champions League on Eurosport and you should watch the under-17s and under-20s and you would have seen players like that. So, uh, But I think you probably watch enough football. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah. Just about. Under-17s is like, a little bit too. It's pushing it for yeah. you. OK, well, there you go. Um, in France, by the way, we've already had a one-all draw between PSG and Monaco, but, you know, rather like in Spain, and this is a big call, I accept, the apparent big game could be something of a red herring because it's Lille who are two points behind PSG at the moment. They go to the Parc des Princes on the 21st of December, so it's the final game before a break uh, to, to buck a trend. And that looks a huge game now. Forget Nantes, who I watched at the weekend, who I thought were dreadful. It's Lille who've been the shock team in France this season, really, conceding only four goals. Uh, Vincent and Yema coming back from the cold and, and, and performing wonderfully in goal. And, of course, being entirely unencumbered by a European campaign. Don't forget about that. Roma have the same uh, bonus. And I don't think we should write them off as the ones who could throw down a challenge. I know it's a, it's a big call, Alex, but what, what do you make of that? Uh, do they look... I mean, they beat Monaco convincingly at the weekend, and... To me, it's that defensive record that appeals, a bit like Roma. If a team is defending that well, they are always going to be dangerous. Yes, it is almost as if defending matters. And we've seen so many flaws defensively from a lot of the big teams this season uh, that it's good to be reminded that actually not conceding goals uh, can get you a very long way. And this, of course, is after a summer in which they lost a a clutch of top players and their manager. And they brought in René Girard, who's much more pragmatic than Rudy Garcia and it's and they've just they've just played it perfectly really it's um I don't know if they'll I don't know if they have enough about them to push PSG all the way but again uh, the longer they can stay there it's certainly going to make it a lot more exciting if uh, if it's not just PSG 15 points of clear but what's intriguing is that everyone said that about Montpellier Two years ago, at this point, everyone was saying, mm. oh, yeah, they're great, aren't they? Under the same coach, remember? And they're fantastic, aren't they? And yeah, I love Giroud and blah, 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 Cabela and, and, and all these kind of players. But, you know, they're not going to be able to keep it going. There's no chance whatsoever. And they proved that if you can hang on and hang on and keep up the pressure, it can happen. And I'm not saying it will, Michael, but you take the point. Yeah, I, I do agree, actually. Although I think it's worth pointing out as well that Monaco don't have European commitments either, so they, they point, almost yeah. don't have that advantage. But I quite like Lille because PSG and Monaco, I mean, I, I don't mean to be too too harsh, but they seem almost artificial, not not in the sense just because they've spent a lot of money, but I don't think of them as kind of classic Ligue 1 sides. They're almost like La Liga sides or Premier League sides, whereas Lille are quite defensive. They play with a lot of width, a lot of pace, a lot of power on the break. And they just seem to represent the league a little bit better, if I can put it like that. So, like winning 1-0 every week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'd quite like to see them there at the end. And, and this game against PSG should be good. Yeah, but, but also, I, I think there's a really good point that you make there in terms of, of French football, that if you've sort of... I've lived over there for five years, and if you fall in love with it a little bit, as I did, then you do like these players who aren't necessarily top-notch players. But over the years, players like... Well, Johan Miku would probably be the king of them, the one who never even played international but never quite made it fully. But players like uh, Steve Savidon, Lillian Lasslande. I mean, I could name millions of sort of players who I've, I've enjoyed watching but uh, aren't quite sort of top-notch. But Lille do kind of sum that up. Nolan Roux would be a classic example. Yeah, yeah. Elegant-looking, decent finisher, scored the goals at the weekend. But, you know, we all know... He ain't going to sign for Manchester City or even for, for Reading, is he, Nolan Rue? But he's an enjoyable player to watch. And in the right team, Ryan Mendes might be another example, in the right team, can, can look decent players. And they've got, I suppose, a sprinkling of stardust with Kalou, if mm. you want to say that. But I, I think it's, it's always a shame when sort of the spell is broken. So I loved Shamak at, at Bordeaux, fantastic player. And he goes, well, oh, he's terrible. And so, you you know, it's nice to see the players in their right environment. You obviously mentioned Lillian Laszlan, who, um, whose Sunderland career 
uh, wasn't the most stellar. So it's always just just nice. Just know your limits. Stay in France. Be a cult hero. I mean, the current example I've already mentioned him, Cabela. Mm. Uh, Montpellier, not playing particularly well, Montpellier. He looks terrific every game, mainly because he can pass to one of his teammates. But lovely player to watch. Balanced runner, can take players on, can beat them. But again, Michael, we both know he's not going to go and, uh, and set the Premier League alight or, or La Liga or in, probably indeed you know, the Eredivisie. He's just not probably quite good enough. But Alex is right. Stay in France. You'll make a nice living. You'll have a great career. Yeah, I'd go for uh, Benoit Pedretti. Great In show. that category. Mm. He's just been doing it for, what, 10, 12 years? Always the same level. You suspect in a really good team he, he wouldn't play that much. But lovely player to watch. Yeah, lovely to watch. Yeah, yeah great passer and sits deep and, and so on. I know James Eastham is a, a fan of his. We had a discussion about the Verratti, Pedretti thing, actually. In a, in a different era, mm-hmm. could Pedretti have been... Uh, would Pedretti probably would have been the one who signed for PSG to, to yeah. play that role, but because they've got the money now, they, they can go further afield and get Verratti. They're probably a better team with Verratti in it. He was sensational uh, at, at the weekend. So what do we think about the, that Lille-PSG game... A PSG Lille game could Lille potentially go and get something? They they can be, they can look weak, can't they? PSG at times they they got away with it against Saint Etienne, for example. I can see Lille frustrating PSG. Maybe there's a chance of a goal on the break, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was a a nil nil. To be honest, nil nil. And a, I think Lille would be happy with that. And they'd it would keep them right in it. What about you, Alex? With that one, you, I mean, PSG are probably going to win the win the whole thing, aren't they? I'm they, just trying to be romantic here. Well, they probably are, but it's going to be one of those games. I think not where PSG overwhelm Lille, but where they might get a bit of. Magic from Zlatan or, or something like that. I mean, that's obviously where PSG have the edges. They have those brilliant individuals. Um, but I think it'll be a tight game. Probably PSG just have that that bit of stardust. That little edge, yeah, the bit of stardust. And just sort of squaring the circle there from where we started on the show, the influence of Rudy Garcia. Roma and Lille, great defensive records. One a team that he's currently in charge of, one that he's very much shaped. I know Girard's done a great job, but do we think Rudy Garcia might be on that coaches list next year? Well, you'd like to think so. <laughs> and René yeah. Girard, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, to go back to the point, they're overachieving with limited resources and, and backing the trend, and neither of them are in charge of sides who we expected to be challenging for the league. So, yeah, they're exactly who should be on the list. Yeah, I think if Rudy Garcia doesn't quite make it next year, I think we're, we're talking disgrace territory, unless, unless everything falls apart completely. Um, that makes both Germany and France make a bit more sense. And before we talk Italy and England, it's time for the results of our Kitchen Food 11 competition from last time. Uh, Michael was here at the inception of this, and, and I think, Michael, you're going to be staggered by the ingenuity of all of this, because we were struggling, weren't we? We were struggling at the start of things. Um, the emails took a while to flood in, but when they did, the quality was something else. Um, none of the entire 11s that anyone sent I thought were good enough to make it, but the composite team is pretty tasty um, in brackets. Uh, uh, congratulate me on that pun. So the um, Kitchen Food 11 looks like this. Uh, we've got some substitutes as well. Alex, are you ready for this? I, th- I think you've seen it, haven't you? Uh, the goalkeeper is Breville Southall. Uh, the defence, uh, right back, Siv Anderson. Uh, Lars Blender playing out of position, but I wanted to get him in the side. And Sylvan Dustpan of the two centre-halves uh, with Wayne Fridge just edging it over Janana Frieser at uh, left-back. Then a midfield of uh, Paul Mintz, Dennis Pies, Torsten Sink and Saint-Étienne's Max Ladle. And then up front, uh, Jürgen Klingfilm, uh, brilliant, whoever came up with that, and Tostau. Uh, playing up front with uh, Jürgen Klingfeld. And then there's a pretty big bench, which consists of, in uh, no particular order, and there are loads of these, so I'm sorry if I've missed you off, but uh, Rudy Follavant, uh, Wayne Spoonie, Nacho Novo, Yuri Forkayev, uh, Denver Breakfast Bar, which means that Denver Bar has now made it into all three of our 11s of <laughs> different guises. Um, Adam Lafondu and uh, Michael Tongs, which, uh, which I liked as well. There were loads of great entries, but in the end, um, the prize of a copy of I Am Zlatan Ibrahimovic goes to the man who came up not just with Sylvan Dustpan, but paired him with Ian Brush. 
Uh, so Sylvain Dustpan and Ian Brush uh, wins it. Simon from Wimbledon wins the prize. Uh, well done to him and commiserations. And thanks to all of you who entered. Uh, you made us all laugh a lot. I'm going to give the quiz a break this week after all of that so we can reset our sights. Um, but it will be back uh, next time. Now, we move on to Italy. And, of course, the uh, run is over for Roma. They've been the team which has rightfully made all of the headlines in Serie A. But you have to feel a little bit for Verona. It's not simply that a newly promoted side and one with such a fine history and great fans too has produced a run of form which has taken them to fifth in the table but also the way that they've played under Mandolini. Verona have been open and attacking. They've met every challenge head on. They deserve immense credit and I think a little bit of publicity and they're going to get that from the Italian football journalist and indeed BT Sports Sunday night superstar uh, James Horncastle. Hi James. Hi Dave, how are you? Was that a good enough introduction? We discussed how I'd introduce you. I thought Sunday Night Superstar was fair. It was, it was excellent. I'm just, uh, I'm just wondering how to follow your, uh, your Denver bar, you know, everything like that. That was, uh, I'm reeling from it. Well, he, he's got into all three of our 11s, James. There was a supermarket 11, uh, so he was Denver Spa. Then there was a, a sort of car 11, so of course he was Denver Car with a K, and now he's got in his Denver Breakfast Bar. So we'll wait and see with the, uh, the next one if he can make it. But um, talking of Verona, we'll talk um, a little bit about Roma Juve straight after the winter break in a moment, but it, it is an extraordinary achievement, isn't it? How, how has he done it so far? Not just where they are, because we've just been... I mean, there are functional teams like Nantes, for example, doing well in France, not playing very well, but how has he done it playing the way that they play as well, James? Well, I, I think they have uh, a great spirit, um, uh, which comes from the fact that Mandolini has been uh, in charge of this club for, for over three years now, and um, there is there is elements of continuity within within this team, and and also you know, players who have been under him for for a few years now are really developing. I'm thinking of, of Jorginho, for example, the the, the midfielder who um, is, is very neat and tidy, someone who can. Um, do both phases of play um, quite comfortably and get himself into the box. I mean, he's a joint top scorer this season with five goals. I mean, four have come from the penalty spot, but he's been he's been a bit of a revelation for them. But aside from that core, I think I think they um, they recruited quite intelligently in the in the transfer window. Um, I, I think many people kind of turned their noses up at, uh, at them signing Luca Toni, even though he, he he did come back to Italy last year and scored. A handful of goals uh, for Fiorentina. He's already done that for them uh, for them this season, and is uh, turning turning back the clock, so to speak. But uh, they've been able to blend that experience with with a bit of youth in in Iturbe, who, um, in, in terms of what you were saying about how how they managed to get this sort of attacking verb going, I think yeah, he's been important to that. Um, yeah, for a long time, he's been perhaps overhyped as this naturalised Argentine from Paraguay who could have been the sort of Paraguay Messi, didn't quite make it at Porto. But I mean he's been he's been excellent since he's he's been at the Bentigodi and um I th- I think the, their ability to get goals from lots of different um sources from, from defence, you think of Cacciatore, the hunter, um cropping up with a few, um as as I mentioned, Jorginho and then in midfield and then Tony and Iturbe in attack. I think that's something that a lot of promoted teams just just haven't been able to create that sort of dynamic that Mandolini has. Uh, and some coaches clearly, James, have the ability to just know how to man manage certain players. It's it's a very different skill, for example, 
uh, getting the best out of Luca Toni, uh, and, and we have seen the best of Luca Toni, haven't we? And Iturbe, who's a player I saw a lot in um, in Argentina, and, and all of us who work together on the Argentine football every weekend raved about him, but was so frustrated by him. He's the kind of player you tell your friends about. They watch him the following week, and he's awful. But he seems to have been able to get the best out of him, which I, I've got, I'd started to despair with him, I have to say. And, and there's so much talent there, but he is starting to... To do that, and he's clearly going to get Iturbe a massive move, isn't he, to somewhere like Roma and be the new Lamella. But it, it, it's it's a really subtle man management skill, that, to have his core of players, James, and then to be able to get the best out of very different kinds of players. I think so. And, and this is a, this is a guy who, who worked um, mostly as a player under under Giovanni Trapattoni, who... who um, one of the great Italian managers, of course, but someone who who you know is, is not particularly renowned for for being a, a sort of a great tactician, more someone you know who who can get the best um, out of out of a group of players, regardless of who they are, whether they're you know playing for for Bayern Munich or into or, or someone like Cagliari or something like that. Um, I think yeah, Mandolini because he's because he's worked for uh, for, for Hellas for, for some time now. I think um, yeah, he has this. Sort of great identity. He knows what what, what it means um, to get players playing for Hellas, um, and I mean he's quite a controversial character in in some respects in in in, uh, in making certain gestures, in singing certain songs. Uh, but I think yeah that 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 creates a kind of a sense of belonging. I think um, which which I think when you're a player going into a club like that and you see a manager who, who identifies himself so much with, with, with a club, um, you kind of you kind of want to play for him, I, I think, because you, he understands what it, what it means to be at the club and, and he's able to transmit that. And uh, as you mentioned at the top, I mean, this is a, this is a great club, Hellas. It's one of the, the oldest clubs in, in, uh, in Italian football. And, uh, and you know, to be... There's a lot of romance surrounding that 1985 Scudetto-winning team of LKR and Hans Peter Briegel, and I think a lot of people wanted them to be to be back um, in the top flight um, and, and sort of re-establish the natural order of things. Because for, for a long time, viewers of Italian football, like yourself and, and myself, it's it's been quite strange seeing Chievo, um, you know, this little suburban team, um, kind of almost usurp their place um, at the top table of Italian football um, because Hellas. Hellas have got so much more history and, and, and such a great support. Yeah, the 85, We now you've mentioned it, we should just quickly mention it, that is one of the most remarkable modern football stories, isn't it? it it's worth it's worth emphasising that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think a lot of people look at, look back on that and say it was, it was, it was one season when, uh, when they changed how they, uh, they designated certain referees and uh, it might have... It might have shifted the the kind of uh, influence that certain big clubs had at that time, and and, and allowed Hellas to uh, well uh, allowed us out of outsider to to get a to get a realistic chance of winning the Scudetto, and uh, um, it was it was again a, a great team, well managed by you know, sort of a, a prophet of the provinces in in in, in Osvaldo Bagnoli. Um, and you know, while it had certain stars like Elkiar, like uh, like Briegel, as I mentioned, you know, it, it had a it had a core of uh, of Italian players who who weren't particularly flashy, you know, um, had, had, had had often been to big clubs like Juventus, like Inter, and hadn't made it. Um, and uh, I'm thinking Pietro Fana, for example, um, who were able to, to to sort of express themselves best at uh, at Hellas, but. 
Um, I mean, uh, this has been their best start since that 84-85 uh, campaign. Uh, uh, I think we should perhaps touch on their home form. They've won all six of their games at the Ventigoli, which is, again, something they haven't done since, I think, 2000, um, 2001 uh, or 2001-2 when, when they... Uh, and they had this great youth team under Malasani, which was uh, Giladino and Oddo and Camoranesi, all of whom would win the World Cup in 2006. But that year they also went down. Um, I, I don't think they will this year. I think they've got they've got enough. I think they've got uh, a lot of momentum behind them. But again, that's perhaps a cautionary tale. Well, we'll talk a little bit about Roma Juve in a second. But Michael, you watch a lot of Serie A, as we well know. What have you made of Verona? Do you like the way that they play? Do you like Man- Mandolini's style? I like Mandolini and I like uh, I like Verona and I very much like Luca Toni, but I think they've been quite fortunate so far. You look at the statistics, and I don't mean to bore you with numbers, but they've had oh, the, go on. They've had, the, they've had the, <laughs> the second least shots on goal um, behind Genoa. They've had the most shots conceded. And so it's remarkable that they're flying up in fifth or sixth place. Um, and you look at where their goals come from. They've been very, very good on set pieces. As James mentions, they've had a lot of penalties. And I just wonder whether those things can go on. And, uh, and James mentions that season when they got relegated over, well, 10 years ago now. And mm. that was amazing because they were not in the relegation zone for the first 37 weeks of the season and ended up being relegated after the 38th. And I, I don't think the same thing will happen, but I'd be amazed if they finished anywhere close to the top. I think they'll, they'll sadly drop like a stone in the next few weeks. So there you go, Alex. I try and do Italian football <laughs> romance uh, on the show. And, uh, Michael, it's a good job when we, did the, when we did the Francesco Totti special. It's a good job he wasn't here. We'd have been, we'd have been a nightmare. But um, do you share, uh, Alex, do you share Michael's um, pessimism about Verona? I, I must admit, I've, I've read the same stats and I know what you mean. They're quite eyebrow raising, aren't they? Yes, I'm sort of thinking about um, sort of Blackpool and teams like that that come and hull <laughs> came into the Premier League and have this amazing start. I mean, you look at this, 22 points from 11 games. I think that they should probably see that as well. We're over halfway to survival. OK. Um, Sorry again to, uh, to, to, to <laughs> trample all over the romance. Well, James, there you go. The sound you could hear in the background was the sound of my bubble bursting. Um, we move on swiftly uh, to, uh, to Roma Juve. And, and what's interesting, it, we're talking today, James, about the fixtures that, you know, that are going to define the season potentially. I know it's an early stage to do so, but it's really interesting, the scheduling, isn't it? Because, of course, when the schedule came out, we didn't realise how key this was going to be. But, but Juve Roma is straight after the winter break. And then, rather like Atleti Barcelona, it's, well, that's the last game of the season in, in Spain. It's the penultimate game as well. So they're, they're interestingly positioned in the season, aren't they, these two fixtures? Yeah, I think I think it's a magnificent uh, piece of schedule. I think I, I think actually uh, both um, coaches, Rudy Garcia and Antonio Conte, will perhaps uh, perhaps welcome it, particularly um, the one that comes uh, the first game after New Year, because um, I think you know when people are thinking about having that extra slice of panettone, they might uh, they, they might think twice about it. But um, yeah, I, I think quite similarly with with Arsenal in, in the Premier League, there's this sort of uh, perception that that Roma haven't necessarily been tested so far this season. I mean, I dispute that. I, th- I think they've they've played Lazio, they've played they've played Inter, they've played Napoli. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's we're, we're only well, okay. We're a quarter into, a quarter of the way into the season, but that, those are three three clubs that you'd expect at the beginning of the campaign that they'd need to beat to be around there. Um, I think you know December as well. Looking looking ahead to them, they they, they played Fiorentina and, and and Milan. Okay. You have to see what kind of position Milan are in back then at that point, but um, yeah, I think we're going to see um, what what Roma are really kind of made of um, uh, over the next uh, over Christmas and into into the winter period. 
Um, I don't, I don't kind of buy this this sort of theory as well that they haven't had their character tested yet either, because I think, um, yeah, to, to to beat Napoli when when they lost Totti, when they lost Gervinho, I thought that was uh, that was impressive to to obviously win in Udine um, when they were down to ten men, um, uh, and you know Udinese hadn't been beaten hadn't been beaten at home for a year. I thought that was that was equally impressive. So. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's going to be it's going to be an interesting uh, month uh, and, and early New Year for for, for Roma um, because yeah, I think as we've seen over the last couple of games, the the, the, the well last three Udinese, Chievo, and Torino, Roma haven't perhaps showed that kind of um, haven't perhaps played as well as they had um, earlier in this this you know, record-breaking run of theirs. But still, seven points out of those games proves that they, they, they're probably here to stay. Is it going to be those two, just finally, James, uh, am I right to pick that fixture? You know, is it going to be those two duking it out, do you think? Um, I, th- I think so. Um, yeah, I, I, I've been... I think because Roma have won, have won their first 10 games in a row, that kind of made everyone, everyone else kind of look bad. Uh, when in actual fact, I think Juventus and, 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 and Napoli... Um, have done really well to kind of stay on their coattails um, and, and, and stay in touch um, throughout that time. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think Juventus's performances, certainly at the beginning of the season, the performance against Lazio and uh, in the Super Cup and the Serie A side, they, they they certainly weren't showing the same kind of um, football that they they had in the last couple of years. But I think they're uh, I think they're coming together. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think. Uh, some of the, the mistakes that they were making uh, at the beginning of the season on characteristic mistakes at the back are being slowly ironed out and we're beginning to see the real real Juve again. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I agree with you, Dave. I think I think coming into New Year and that penultimate game of the season, I think they, they perhaps will be the, 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 the ones on which this season swings. Brilliant stuff. Thank you so much, uh, James. Uh, I'll let you go back to being the star of, Saturday, of Sunday night, rather. And uh, thanks also for thanks for reminding us of Hans-Peter Briegel and Preben Elkia. What a team that was. That was uh, happy memories. That uh, James Horncastle, great to uh, to hear from him. Michael, um, Roma-Juve. You know, this, is, this, this is a sort of dream kind of game for you to analyse, isn't it? Two teams playing an interesting way. Conte, brilliant tactically over the last two years. Garcia potentially matching him. You, you must be licking your lips about this. Yeah, that should be very good. And um, I guess another thing we should consider is that that will be once the transfer window is open and you wonder whether Roma will strengthen. I mean, they, There's they, been talk, hasn't there? Well, they brought in a lot of money in the summer. You know, they sold uh, Marquinhos, Lamella and, uh, Osvaldo. and Osvaldo to, to get in a lot of money. So especially with a, you know, a title charge imminent, you think they'll probably strengthen, bring in one or two big names. Do you, do you think it's a... James says it's fantastic that that fixture is straight after the break. Do you, do you go along with that? I I sort of prefer the Spanish thing where they've got a game to warm up and then play the biggie, if you like. Yeah, I think after the break, there's often a, a bit of rustiness. So I agree. I think the Spanish format, how it's turned out, would actually work slightly better. I, I guess my main hope really is that these uh, the leagues go to the end of the season. We do have proper title deciders. I fear that they will come a little bit too late, especially in Spain. I think Barcelona probably will have wrapped it up. I think we've got maybe 5% chance of the game of the season and 95% chance of a, a complete dead rubber. Yeah, you're in good good mood today, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, I, I, I like the idea of Gazetta having a headline about an extra slice of Panettone as well, building up to Roma-Juve. What do you make of that one, Alex? The, uh, it's, it's actually Juve-Roma, isn't it? We should emphasise in January. Roma-Juve comes uh, the penultimate day of the season, but, but 
it, it, have Roma been tested, or is that the ultimate test for them? Oh, well, they definitely have been tested. They've played basically everyone except Juve. So, you know, what 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 more do you want? They they have been tested, and you know the real barometer isn't whether they can beat top sides because we've seen that they can. It's whether they can continue to beat uh, to beat them. But I think James's point about the Panettone is actually very. It's going to be hugely significant. It's the team. It's the team that prepares best that comes back from the from the break and is and is and is right back on it. That's going, that's going to succeed. I, I think so. Um, it's going to be a different kind of game, but uh, but I mean that's going to be that's going to be the key, isn't it? I mean this must really whet your appetite as well. We could go on for hours about game management and tactics and so on with regard to it, Michael. But these are two great minds. Um, you know, the, whether Garcia can work out because Stuart Robson, as you well know, talks about Conte in such glowing terms, and Stuart can be very critical, but he says Juve is just about. You know the the best coach team. That that's the way of doing it. He loves the tactical way that Conte does things. He loves that the players clearly all know their jobs. But mm. the idea of that not perfect but exceptional system coming up against what Garcia will have to offer will be terrific because we don't know what Garcia is going to do. Yeah, that's very true actually. And um, and in more specific terms, it's interesting that Juve have gone to back four in Europe and uh, against Real Madrid both times. I thought they were unlucky to lose away. Um, really, just Chiellini had a poor game. Um, and then getting a tool draw last night, I think it shows that they've got a lot of variety and they've got a lot of options. And Roma, we haven't seen variations from them, partly because we haven't had to. They kept on winning. But I think if it does come down to a very tactical game, Conte probably will have the upper hand. Yeah, although Rudy Garcia is sort of untested as well to an extent at that level. So, yeah, going to be really interesting. What does your gut tell you about Serie A? Because mine tells me Juve are going to win it. Much though I know what I want to happen. Yeah, I'd love to see Roma win it. I think this is a, a really good team, but I think Juve have a bigger and a deeper squad, and I think they're still the favourites. And if Higuain stays fit, we shouldn't write them off either. Yeah, I, I personally, I think this is a three-way title fight. I've got to say, I think Napoli will be involved at a later stage. But talking of that January transfer window, do you not think they have to have a replacement for Higuain? I know Duvan is someone that uh, Benitez likes, but... Yeah, I mean, Benitez was quite insistent back in the summer. He wanted two strikers in. He only got one in. Um, but it's so difficult to buy a backup striker in a system like that because you can't spend fifteen million on someone and just use them from the bench because they won't be happy. You've got to have someone who can play wide or up front. So a little bit like um, with Arsenal, actually, they need a replacement for Giroud, but they're not going to spend yeah. twenty million on a bench warmer. So it's it's a really difficult purchase, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know that you you would, as Michael would, as I would, like it to be a four way title race in Italy uh, involving another team that we're all very fond of. But uh, do you see it as a three way um, with Napoli involved as well? And you see Juve coming out on top? No, I see Juve going out of the Champions League, dropping down into the Europa League, being thoroughly miserable. <laughs> and actually, this will be the this will be the, um, the, the the division where someone else wins it. And who's who is the someone else going to be? I don't know. What do you want from me? I've already said it's not going to be Juve. I've seen the hooded top that you wear in the office. I know it's exactly not. It's certainly who you want not going to be Fiorentina. Okay. Um, Let's say Roma, but you think you think. But Roma I think I think I think that Juve are vulnerable. This this show is not is 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 not partial to anybody, but I think we all know what we'd like to happen. Um, anyway, finally, we turn our attention to the Premier League in England. The first thing we need to do is work out what the key fixture actually is. Uh, it's very hard to even agree on that. I think Arsenal-Chelsea on the 23rd of December would seem to be favourite maybe right now, although Man City-Arsenal on the 14th would be another contender. Um, I'll give Michael and Alex a chance to work that out, because first I thought it would be fun to hear from uh, one of our favourite pundits out there, one of the most underrated too, in my opinion. Um, Paul Walsh played for Liverpool, Manchester City and Spurs, as well as Luton, uh, and also partnered some pretty useful forward players. So in the light of all the talk about Sturridge and Suarez and Rooney and Van Persie and indeed Aguero and Negredo, I thought that he could tell us just what makes a good strike partner. 
Well, Paul, there's a lot of talk at the moment about the return of the, the front two in, uh, in, in English football, at least, uh, in terms yeah. of uh, Rooney and Van Persie and, of course, Suarez and Stoge. You could argue Negredo and Aguero to a certain extent as well. But you played in the era when it was always pretty much a front two. What, what makes for you that sort of perfect strike partnership, do you think, with all the players you played well, with? Well, a combination of qualities, really. Um, you know, different players bring different uh, things to the party, don't they? I mean, if you look at Russian Dalglish, for instance, Dal Dalglish was great having a ball back to goal, into feet, turning quickly. Rush was great off the shoulder with his pace getting in and could finish. So that was that was a marriage made in heaven, that one. But, you know, everyone knows their role. And I think two players, when they play together, have got to be happy in the roles that they're playing in. Um, sometimes forwards get forced together um, and it doesn't work because there isn't a, a mentality to make it work because one thinks he should be doing this and the other one thinks he should be doing that. And then suddenly, you know, they're not working together and you've got to want to work together. You played with Rush and Douglas, didn't you? Yep. So presumably that meant that you had to adapt depending on who you played with because you, you yep. could sort of do both things, either play yep. with Douglas and be the, 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 the more forward-thinking player or play with Rush and be the creator. Yeah, I mean, when, when, I, when I played with both of them in the team, uh, Kenny would drop into a deeper role and I played up front with, with, uh, with Ian Rush. So, um, I mean, that worked because Kenny was, as, was adaptable because he was quality. Um, so he could do that quite easily. Um, you know, but uh, like I say, you've got to, have, you've got to be happy and, and, in, the, in the role that you're playing, otherwise it won't work. And how important is the relationship, Paul? Because there was a lot of talk with Sturridge and Suarez at the weekend, the, the moment where Sturridge flung his yeah. arms up towards the end. I mean, we shouldn't read too much into that, but how important do you have to get on? To, to be a top strike partner? Um, well, I, I, I played uh, at Luton in the top flight with Brian Steen and we didn't get on, but, you know, we played. We ended up getting an England cap. We only won between us. Uh, well, we played one game against a very good French team. Um, but, but, you know, we didn't, you know, but you have to, that's where you're a professional. You know, I'm not going to not pass to him because I don't like him. We, you know, we've got, and you do things instinctively where you play off and into someone and if you see the pass, you play it. You don't think, oh, I've seen it. I'm not going to give it to him because I don't like him. You know, so, uh, yeah, you've got to be professional about it. Does one of you always have to be selfless as well, do you think? I mean, you play with Guy Whittingham who scored a, a ludicrous amount of goals, yeah. didn't he? And he got all the headlines and you didn't really. And, and he got 47, you got 14. Did, you have to be comfortable to do that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, no, no I, you know, I was quite happy in that role um, and that's what made it work. You know, if I'm thinking, why is he getting all the attention, all the goals? Um, and, uh, you know, but, but yeah, it worked and he got a move to Aston Villa off the back of it with his 47, but everyone looks at our partnership and said what a great partnership it was. But in terms of goals, I mean, he, he, he smashed everybody in the league that season, but it worked. We had Mark Chamberlain on the right-hand side, Alan McLaughlin running from deep, you know, so there, there, was, there was good elements to that, the, the mix of the team uh, and me and Guy fitted. Yeah, and, and looking at the modern partnerships, if you like, the ones I've mentioned, who, who do you, as, a, as an ex-striker, admire the most in, in, in current well, English football? I think, I think you know, you, you've only got to look at, you know, Van Persie and, and Rooney and Suarez and Sturridge. You know, they've looked very together, Sturridge and Suarez, for me. Not so much Rooney, although it's developing and, and Van Persie, but Suarez and Sturridge, it looks like the manager's got into them and said, look, I want this to work, you as a pair. And, and you know, stop trying to outdo each other. Stop trying to, you, you're not the top man, you're not the top man. Let's work it together and you'll be brilliant together. And they have been brilliant. But there was that little sign you mentioned where, you know, Suarez had the, the attempt himself uh, and you could tell that Sturridge thought that was selfish and threw his arms about that can develop into a rift if you're not careful. And it, it's interesting because you talk to a lot of 
of, of, of other ex-footballers, and I've heard from several, Stuart Robson would be one, for example, that Stuart's quite critical of a lot of players, but he loves Suarez and thinks yeah. he's, he's right up there. You agree, don't yeah. you? And a lot of people you talk to do as well. Oh, yeah, for, for me. Well, you know, listen, we, we see a lot of football, so when you're talking about who excites you, Suarez excites me. You know, there's, there's Messi, Ronaldo, and then for me, Suarez, if I, they're my top three players to watch in the world at the moment, Suarez does unbelievable things all on his own, but he has, and, and that was my worry about him and Sturridge linking up. Could they play together? Does he want to play with Sturridge? Um, you know, will their egos get in the way? Well, he seems to put that to bed. Well, I think they have. And, um, you know, they've got a good partnership going on there. Uh, probably the best two. Because everyone went 4-3-3, and that meant you had a one-striker. Um, so there was no partnerships. Partnerships were virtually going out of the game. It seems to be making a comeback. And uh, just finally, from your Liverpool perspective, with your Liverpool hat on, is he still a Liverpool player next season, do you think? Well, you know, you like, I, I'd like to think so. Um, you know, what's in his head? Um, and he had his head turned, he would have gone to Arsenal. If, it, you know, if Liverpool had accepted a bid, he would have gone, wouldn't he? Um, I'm glad that Liverpool you know, stuck to their guns. Hopefully, if Liverpool can, can keep improving and get into the top four Champions League football, he'll stay. You're listening to the European Football Show in association with Eurosport. You can join in the Twitter debate at Eurofooty Show and get in touch with your thoughts by email, studio at europeanfootballshow.eu. So there you go, uh, exclusive European football show. Paul Walsh and Brian Steen didn't get on. You didn't know that, did you? But they still played very well together. I love the way he said in the interview as well that we got one England cap. Uh, he meant together. Because Paul got, well, they both got more than that, but they got, they saw him as such a partnership. And I also love that uh, he was uh, the supplier for Guy Whittingham in that season at Portsmouth when he got 47 goals. And Paul doesn't have any bitterness about that at all because what he says is that the, you know, he, uh, he fed Guy Whittingham for his 47. He got a move to Villa for big money off as the result of that. And Paul said, well, I had to be the one who dropped deep and played in the ball because he couldn't do that for me. He wasn't good enough. So it's about being selfless. It's kind of fun. And th- that is a ni- an interesting theme, isn't it, with those strike partnerships, Michael? And that might be what decides the title in, in terms of Aguero and Negredo and uh, and whether the others perform as well and whether Arsenal have that. Yeah, I mean, I think the best at the moment is probably Suarez and uh, and Sturridge. And Rodgers has changed his system so that he can play both of them up front together without losing the midfield battle. But then I think the problem is they don't have enough coming from deeper and it's, it's too reliant on them. Um, I think Aguero and Negredo is particularly interesting. Aguero, I can never quite decide what type of player he is. I can never decide whether he's almost a number 10 that plays higher up the pitch or someone that wants to be on the shoulder of the defender. But Negredo as well is, is an all-rounder. He's more of a, a complete player than you expect when you first see him. And they've got a very good relationship as well. Alex, I was criticised on the, on the last European football show for talking about the English title race and not mentioning Manchester United. <laughs> so I suppose I should give them a cursory mention. But should we include them in, in any of the fixtures that are going to define the season? Or are they... Well, Out of it already and off the pace. What do you think? Well, they're, they're Says two, he goading you. They're two points behind Chelsea and Manchester City, and given the start they've had, that's that, that's not bad at all. Uh, and I think it may not be a one that defines the title race, but Manchester Manchester United v Arsenal this weekend, I think is is is, is a huge fixture. Not because it's the two best teams in the division, but because it's it's a real barometer of Arsenal's uh, title challenge. It's for me, it's the defining fixture of the Premier League era. That rivalry stands above all other rivalries in the last 20 years. And in recent years, it's been one where United have constantly had the upper hand. They've always managed to, they've always managed to, to, to sort of get get one over Arsenal. And it's been a fixture also that sort of brought out the angst in Arsenal. There was the the incident where Arshavin came off the bench and everyone was booing like mad. It's 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 something that really kind of 
for Arsenal, it's a hugely important fixture. And if they can reverse the recent trend, then that will give them real belief that they can that they can go all the way, even if this isn't a, a, a vintage United side. Yeah, uh, with Arsenal, that is the fear, isn't it? That they lose in recent seasons. They've lost the big games. Uh, the Liverpool win will have given them confidence. But why do they lose the big games, Michael? Because we throw words around like self-belief and uh, you know they're, they're, they're not up for it enough, they don't fight enough. But it, it must be more than that, surely. Do they, do they just come up short tactically or do they come up short because of the lack of a goal scorer? What, what do you think it is? I think it's two things. I think it's partly at, at times they've had a lack of characters on the side. You know, Five years ago, for example, they had a lot of young players together. I think that has changed this season. They've got Murta Saka, who's a, a good leader, Arteta, I think, is hugely responsible. The return of Flamini has been excellent. Um, tactically, I think often Wenger didn't have the the different options. He often had a first eleven and then a second eleven that were kind of carbon copies of them. You think, for example, uh, Ashley Cole, Kieran Gibbs, Gail Kalisha. He always likes the same sort of player. And I think that has handicapped Arsenal at times. But this is slightly different. You look at the midfield zone... You've got, for example, Arteta, who's who's a passer, but someone who plays deep. Flamini, who's a destructive player. Ramsey, who's become an all-rounder. Wilshire, who's good at the transitions. I think he's got more options than ever before. And I think in big games now, Arsenal um, should have the, the squad and should have the the tactical options to defeat better sides. But in terms of the title race as well, it, it is fascinating in itself that... You know, doing the research, I've struggled to find a definitive fixture. And, and you talked about title races going down to the final day. This is the one that almost certainly will, unless someone streaks ahead in the last three weeks or something. I agree. Actually, I think if there's going to be a crucial fixture, I think it uh, could be the return between City and Chelsea. I think they're still the best two sides or, or with the, the greatest potential. And uh, obviously they've just played each other, so that will be a, a expect in mid-March. So I think that will be a really big game. And maybe will the key moment of the season, Alex, be, you know, if we're looking for these turning points, will it be the dropping of Joe Hart? In the sense that it galvanised the rest of the team and made them all realise they had to play better. Well, it, it could be. It could be. I mean, it's, it's going to be quite difficult, I think, for Hart to get back into the side because Pantsilimon's a good goalkeeper. And if he continues to play well, then there's no reason to bring Hart back so it's going to be absolutely fascinating to see what happens I saw it um, touted yesterday that he would be loaned out to Arsenal in January um, which is probably a long shot but uh, it's if Pantinamon continues to play well and there's no reason why he shouldn't it's going to be very difficult for Hart to get back in Yeah, I quite like Arsenal's goalkeeper I have to say I always think he's a little bit uh, undervalued Sir Chesney I, I don't see the problem he makes the odd mistake but so do, so do all goalkeepers Yeah, and as I many think, as Joe Hart I think <laughs> that's one of the interesting things ahead of uh, this weekend's fixture between United and Arsenal two goalkeepers De Gea and Chesney who maybe got into the, the side at slightly younger age than is ideal but um, they were both dropped briefly you know Maybe not drop with De Gea, but they had Lindegaard who came in um, at Arsenal. Fabianski had a spell in the side. And, and maybe that time out of the limelight helps them. And they become better goalkeepers and I think now a solid number one. So I wouldn't be surprised if Hart does get back into the side. And just, I know I always ask you this, but people always email in and are fascinated. But just finally from both of you, if we look at the major leagues we've talked about, what, what right now, what, who do you see as the winners? So if we go, uh, if we start with England, who do you see as the winners? You still, you're still a City fan, aren't you? Uh, not literally. No, yeah. no, I know. I know, I know. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I think City. I'll go around the leagues if, if you go want. On. Uh, City, PSG, uh, Juve, Barcelona and Bayern. So maybe the, the big guns, I'm afraid. OK, and you, Alex? Uh, Chelsea, PSG, Bayern, Roma, Barca. Oh, he's gone Roma. I like it. And I'm, yourself? 
I well, I would go. Um, I, I'm going to leave England till last because I find it very difficult. But I'm going to go uh, PSG, Dortmund, uh, Juve, Barcelona, and Arsenal is where I'm going in terms of the winners. I think that might be the that might be the five. And uh, I, I really wish I was saying Fiorentina, but it, it's not going to happen. That's it from the uh, European Football Show in association with Eurosport. We'll be back in two weeks' time with much more, and we hope that you enjoyed our latest offering. My thanks to all of our guests, to John Driscoll and James Horncastle, to Paul Walsh, and, of course, to Jürgen Klingfilm, to Alex Chick and Michael Cox. Keep in touch and tell your friends about us. You know that they'll love it. But for now, from me, Dave Farah, it's goodbye. Goodbye.